Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking streaming with KO and Binge's Ant Hearn and Louise Crompton about what KO has learned during COVID. Where it's been tough, it's also had a silver lining in that it showed us the, the power of that non-live content. The origins of the Binge brand. In, in the spirit of the brand, we're also being a little bit cheeky in that we are hijacking the category verb. And entering a cluttered streaming market. Uh, we're late to the party, but we are going to walk in that door with impact. But first, the week's topics. AFL is back, but is it really the most anticipated game of the century? Jeep's misguided new marketing campaign. Job cuts at News Corp and the ABC. And has the Australian media industry missed its Me Too moment? We'll start with the week in television as we record this on Thursday. That means that tonight sees the return of AFL to Seven, Fox Footy and KO. Um, Viv, Seven did a virtual launch for advertisers this week, which you watched, and they made some pretty bold promises. They did. Uh, Amongst saying that this round two match was going to be the most anticipated game of this century, uh, Seven's Chief Revenue Officer, Kurt Burnett, said that every round of the AFL was going to create records on the way through. So round two will be record-breaking, round three will be record-breaking, round four will be record-breaking according to to that logic. And uh, Natalie Harvey, who's their network sales director, sort of doubled down on that saying that because those people who would normally go to the match can't go, the TV audience will be even bigger. So if anything, COVID will be a a boon for the AFL, according according to this prediction. And did you find yourself, obviously these are salespeople who are very good at what they do, did you find yourself persuaded by the case they were making? Look, it's pretty hard to persuade me, Tim, and uh, neither Kurt nor Natalie were trying to persuade me because they uh, they're not going to get my dollars. So I think it was a it was a slick presentation and uh, a bit more sort of humble than uh, the seven of years gone by. You know, they were much more. Uh, aware of the toll that COVID has taken, the work they've had to put in to survive it. And and Burnett was very thankful to advertisers for, for sticking with Seven and for giving them money at a time when there's not that much money to splash around. So it wasn't as much of a chess-beating contest as Seven events have been in years gone by. It was much more humble and uh, a lot of excitement about the AFL returning. I'm, I'm not sure I buy into the idea that it's going to be the biggest uh, sporting moment of the century, uh, but I'm I'm sure, you know, that, that people will watch it, but uh, it's it's not going to be what Seven would have had had they held on to the Olympics, for example. Yes, because, of course, we'd have been counting down in the final few days before the Olympics if uh, if things had uh, turned out differently. Um, obviously, really, AFL, really important to Seven in free-to-air. Also really important for Foxtel and its streaming service, KO. Yes, well, as we've spoken about before, KO for a while was – 
Foxtel's sort of shining light. When when Foxtel couldn't seem to catch a break, it had this technology platform that was really good with KO and it was getting good numbers, good engagement and good feedback. But it is, of course, reliant on sport. And one of the benefits of KO is you're not locked into a contract. You don't have a box like a Foxtel IQ box. So the second live sport stops, presumably most consumers are going to want to part ways with KO, which is what happened during COVID. So you're not going to keep paying for a subscription to watch old matches unless you're a super, super fan. So I imagine that they are also excited about the return of the NRL and the AFL because they can start getting people back onto their streaming service and start getting some money again. I'd love to know how much inertia there was, though, of people who just kept that subscription going anyway. I I, I remember seeing a, a story a few days ago about how um, – uh, Netflix is going to actually stop taking money from the bank accounts of people who haven't logged in for, I think it was at least a year or something like that. So presumably there's also a bit of an inertia thing where people just keep their subscriptions going sometimes and barely even notice that the money's going out. Look, people like me who hate life admin would probably fall into that trap, but I can't look, even with those uh, lazy people like me who forget to cancel things or give away their credit card details in a free trial and then forget to cancel when the 30 days is up, they still would have taken a massive hit. And even their sort of reputation would have, it's not their fault that sport has disappeared, but they had so much momentum and so much goodwill behind them that then for sport to stop altogether, all that positive chatter about KO has obviously stopped because it's no longer a growth and success story while there's nothing to watch. Well, as Viv mentioned, we will be chatting to the executives from KO and sister streaming service Binge a little bit later in the Mumbrella cast. Um, sticking with Seven, we also saw the return of Big Brother this week. Um Viv, I, I didn't ahead of time get to hear your chat um, with Sonia Kruger, which went out in last week's Mumbrella cast. So it was only when I was uh, I was going for a walk and listening to it after we uploaded it uh, that I finally heard it, which was last Friday morning. And I remember thinking, oh, she's been brave there. She's made herself a bit of a hostage to fortune by suggesting that success looks like 800,000 Metro viewers. But they pulled it off. Look, when Sonia said that, I was so pleased because I I don't like it when people pussyfoot around uh, giving a prediction and I sort of thought it might be like that moment when Nine's Adrian Swift gave a figure for Family Food Fight and said he'd dance a jig if it got that number and I don't think we've ever let him forget the jig dancing. So I really liked that Sonia was bold enough to to proclaim that 800,000 Metro viewers, and perhaps I was even more surprised when it did better than that. It got 930,000 Metro viewers uh, for the eviction portion of the first episode, and the main episode had 866,000 Metro viewers and 853,000 for the arrival section of the program. So it was coded into three parts, but all three parts were above Sonia's prediction and probably above most people's. What I thought was interesting, though, was for some time we've had this sort of unspoken rule that one million Metro viewers is the benchmark, and I wonder, Tim, if if that's fallen now. You know, MasterChef is still getting over one million Metro viewers on 10 for quite a few of its episodes, but is the benchmark now 800K is, is the goal? We've been manipulated. <laughs> 
into accepting the new uh, the new benchmark. But of course, the other thing the networks would always um, correctly tell us is that uh, not all viewers are equal. Metro viewers count more than regional viewers in advertisers' eyes, and uh, some demographics more than others. So twenty five fifty four is always that key advertising demographic, and Big Brother went pretty well there. Yes, so. On its debut, uh, Big Brother did top the key advertising demographics, so including that 25 to 54 one that you mentioned, Tim, as well as the 18 to 49s and 16 to 39. So James Warburton, the CEO of Seven, has been pushing for Seven to do better in the demos. You know, whilst it often does win the total people battle with the likes of Seven News and Home and Away and those consistent tentpole programs, it hasn't been as successful as 9 and 10 in those key demos. Big Brother, though, in recent days uh, hasn't been topping the demos, so it's been placing second to MasterChef. MasterChef has sort of gotten back on top, but it has been rare in recent months to even see Seven playing in the demos. So even though they're now second to 10's MasterChef, you know, it's better than not being there at all. And I guess the question is... um has Big Brother now satisfied everyone's curiosity for viewers and will they gradually fall away or will they stick with the show? Look, viewers are so far falling away. Uh, it's not, as I say, MasterChef is now beating it and it's down in the 700,000s now rather than the 800,000s, but there were always going to be more viewers for episode one. You know, it's the premiere, it's a show that's been off the air for a while and people were going to see what what a show about lockdown and what a show about being watched all the time looks like in a time when we're locked down and being watched all the time. But I, I do imagine it will continue to fall away, largely because viewers don't get a say this time. And I know that viewers don't get a say in the likes of Survivor or MasterChef, but I think one of the draw cards was with Big Brother was, you know, keeping someone really annoying in there so that you could watch more delicious television. But if the housemates start evicting all the annoying people and all the drama queens, well, there goes all the excitement. Next, job cuts at Australia's biggest two news organisations. More job losses this week. And just for a change, at least one set can't be blamed on COVID. Brit, the ABC looking to take $40 million out of its budget. Yeah, which apparently looks like at least 200 up to 250 job losses. So Now, I was trying to do the maths on that because that implies, on average, those people are getting nearly $200,000 each in salary, unless there are some other cuts as well. Or my maths is wrong. Well... Look, I didn't do that maths, Tim, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the ABC pays, you know, better than its commercial counterparts in some instances, but who knows, it? there could be kind of cuts elsewhere as well. Um, I mean, some of the chatter was definitely around, oh, I wonder what someone like David Spears is on at the ABC and how many journalists his salary would cover, for example. But um yeah, the first kind of, I guess, round of this process is an expressions of interest process, which is for voluntary redundancies. So any division that is facing more than 10 cuts 
anyone in those teams has already been asked if they would like to take a redundancy package. Of course, you know, how long you've been at the ABC and what your salary is and all of those kinds of things would play into whether or not you'd want to do that or not. So staff were told in an all-staff email from Managing Director David Anderson earlier in the week that the losses were unavoidable because they are dealing with a $41 million sort of budget shortfall until the end of 2022. And I guess funding of the ABC always becomes political because, you know, the government decides where the funding's going. And certainly this is, a, the, you know, the case that critics of the decisions to, let's, let's call it reduce the funding, and I know even that is a, is, is a controversial description, um, would claim that uh, it's because the, the government doesn't really like the ABC. Um, is, is that a fair way of painting it or is it just, you know, Every media organisation has to make do with less money these days, do you think? Oh, I mean, look, that's it's a pointed question and it's a hard one to answer, I think, because I don't think it's quite enough to say, well, commercial media is struggling and therefore our public broadcaster should be struggling too. I mean, the relationship between coalition governments and the ABC is always kind of a, a fraught one. And I do think that at the moment it's, it's particularly, I guess, hard to swallow if you're a fan of the ABC and like the work that it does because we've seen just how hard the ABC has worked throughout the bushfires and now throughout COVID-19. Um, I've actually just come from a webinar that Tellum uh, put on, which included as one of the panellists, Gavin Morris, who's the ABC's news director. And you know, there, there were obviously questions around what media looks like post-COVID and how newsrooms, including the ABCs, has responded. And he was saying towards the end that, you know, media moving forward means that people can't just be good at doing one thing really well. They need to be good at doing multiple things really well. And whilst that argument makes sense, it feels like we're already well beyond that point. I mean, he he kind of said earlier that, you know, nobody in his news team is just a digital journalist or just a photographer or, you know, just a video journalist. They're working on all of these things at once. And, you know, I remember when I graduated from uni, you know, a few years ago now, there was already, it was already so clear that you couldn't just walk into a newsroom and be like, right, I know how to write and that's all I'm going to do. Or you couldn't just walk in and be like, I know how to produce video and that's all I'm going to do. So, that's, I think what he was pointing at is that, you know, these changes are going to mean that that's more necessary than ever. But I kind of just feel a little bit disheartened because I think we're already kind of at that point anyway. Now, Viv, as I asked that question about the politics of it, I, I also had our video chat window open and you made the most extraordinary expression. And I wasn't sure if it was because you disagreed with the question or whether you'd, you'd just drunk something that tasted funny. Uh, no, Tim, I think you'll find that I whacked my wrist on the side of the table and it's now bleeding. So I'm in a state of distress as I try to continue through this podcast. But thank you for bringing it to everybody's attention. <laughs> well, it's good of you to take one for the team. Would you Would you like to pause for a minute to, to no, apply it, some it, first aid? Or It's okay. I, I'm going to survive. I'll make it through. <laughs> well, in that case, I'm going to stick with you, Viv. You, you, you wrote this week's article about the... Uh, 
latest round of job cuts at News Corp. Now, we'd already covered the masthead closures in the community and local titles, the the print mastheads, that was. Um, This time, uh, cuts at the metro and national operation at at News. And I always say core, but I was actually called out on Twitter this week from a listener who pointed out that it's pronounced core. Of course, it's pronounced We all know this, Tim. Well, I've been saying it wrong for yeah, the but- last decade, and none of you have been kind enough to point it's it out. Well, Thanks that- a lot. <laughs> Tim, that also means that for the past decade you haven't listened to anybody else because everybody else says corp. So actually what you've revealed there is you only listen to yourself because I actually got a text from somebody a few weeks ago saying, does Tim realise that he says core, not corp? But I I didn't pass it off. Even then you didn't mention her? Because I assumed you knew and you were just, I don't know, being pedantic or deliberately English. Well, I guess because I actually, I I went down this rabbit hole of looking up definitions and this sort of thing because they're the root of the word corporation, which is obviously where News Corps comes from, is different from, you know, the French for, you know, an army corps. But I guess I was always just saying it as the army corps. But sorry, I interrupted you, Brittany. What were you going to? Well, I was going to mention that one I thought it may have been some pointed little reference to Army Corps all this time. And two, I found it perplexing if you didn't know Corp because we've heard Michael Miller and Rupert Murdoch all say Corp and I thought, oh, Tim's sticking it to the men. He knows what he's doing. (laughs) Apparently not. (laughs) No, it completely passed over my head until a kind listener pointed it out, obviously in a snarky way, because that's, you know, that's the umbrella audience, I suppose. But um but at least I now know. Mind you, see I remember as a kid, for many years I thought um a word the the, the word antique was pronounced antiqu. So um, you know, this is just a another late arrival in my my adult life. But I digress slightly. <laughs> Viv cuts at News Corp. Corp, indeed, with a P. Uh, Yes, it has now hit their metro operation, as you said, Tim. So there's going to be some syndication across sort of production and editorial roles for their mastheads, including the Daily Telegraph in Sydney and Melbourne's Herald Sun. So national news stories, I guess, instead of being written multiple times or tackled by multiple newsrooms, there's going to be a lot more collaboration. News Corp was sort of keen to frame this as not a new round of cuts. You know, they don't want it to seem like they're cutting every week. It was very pointed when they sort of said that this has been in the plans for a long time, as we've previously detailed. So in in their mind, it's part of their wider restructure as they deal with falling advertising revenues and COVID-19 and changes to the media landscape and their focus on digital subscriptions but I guess we see it differently because it hit the regions and and now it's hit the cities as well. It's not clear how many job losses there will be but what I did find interesting was when they cut the regional titles, when they were talking about the void that that would leave, their argument was, well, the state-based titles will double down and become even more state-focused. So the Daily Telegraph will have more New South Wales news, more regional news, more of a state focus as opposed to News Corp's uh, national masthead, The Australian. Now, though, if we're going to start syndicating stories and collaborating even more, I find it difficult to see how both statements can be true at the same time, how we can have 
more unique papers focused on their states while also having journos and production roles sort of all centralised. Next, where next for Me Too in Australia's media industry? Sign up to Mumbrella Pro's free seven-day trial to access hundreds of hours of exclusive video content and audio analysis. Gain access to a comprehensive industry directory with over 2,000 contacts across agencies, media and brands. And be sure to check out the brand new case studies for top insights on just what goes into creating award-winning work. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash pro to take the free trial today. This week, Now Australia said it was shutting down. Now kicked off two years ago, inspired by the Me Too movement. The intention was to tackle the issue of workplace harassment, particularly in the media industry. Um, Two years ago, it felt like quite an exciting time. There was progress being made um, out of the US, but also to a lesser extent here in Australia. Um, And I think we expected some big things to happen, but they never really occurred. So why is now Australia closing now? Look, exciting time if you're a woman, probably not an exciting time if you were a perpetrator, but it seems that they can relax now in in the sense that you're right, Tim, it did feel like there was going to be this huge expose and that, you know, perpetrators and predators were really on notice. And I imagine there were a few sweaty palms uh, when Tracy Spicer did a big media splash and basically said, you know, she's going to get all these stories and, and she's going to expose people. There was big momentum behind it. But I think one of the criticisms it's attracted was that it was too media focused. It was too focused on Tracy herself and too focused on the big publicity trail rather than the actual victims and having a structure in place that worked. You know, there were a lot of questions that were asked when now said it was going to to triage its its services. And one of those things was counselling. And People asked now Australia, well, there's not even enough counselling services and and money to fund, you know, rape crisis lines. So are you setting up a a new crisis line? Are you relying on existing crisis lines? Because there's just not capacity. And when it came to the actual strategy and the logistics of it, it just it just didn't work. Now uh, the organisation is saying that the funding is isn't there anymore, and it's it's too difficult to keep going. But I do think it had some serious structural issues, and obviously issues in actually doing what it set out to do. You know, Tracy said that thousands of stories were shared with her, and I remember back in eighteen. I don't know if I made this up, but I, I feel like we were waiting on you know, a story of a high-profile perpetrator every eight weeks or so, you know, it felt like there was going to be something splashed on the front page of the then Fairfax Papers and a joint investigation with the ABC. So there were allegations against Craig McLaughlin and allegations against Don Burke and then it kind of just fizzled out. Uh, I don't know what happened to all those other stories that were shared with Tracy and all those high-profile people who we were allegedly going to hear about she said that our appetite for Me Too just isn't there because of our restrictive defamation laws, but 
it can't it can't just be that it feels preposterous that there's only two high profile alleged perpetrators in Australia. Yeah, look, and I suppose one of those things is defamation laws. You'd have heard us there being very careful about using words like allegations against. Um, Brit, it's a pretty high hurdle you have to jump over to publish anything negative about somebody in Australia versus, say, the US. It is, and I think, I, I don't know how much the legal systems shape the culture in the US versus they do here, it has to have an impact because it just feels like culturally our media industry just isn't where it even needs to be to get to a point where we're ready to have those sorts of conversations. I mean, forget about, you know, defamation laws and defamation cases. You know, we saw Jeffrey Rush is a a very good and high profile example of, you know, a defamation case that that he won and that proved just how difficult it is to succeed as an accuser in this country. But even over the past week, couple of weeks in, you know, the space of the Black Lives Matter movement and racism in the US, it's been interesting to see there, you know, you've had a very high profile New York Times opinion editor step down. You've had the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine stepped down. You've had the editor of Refinery29 stepped down. And yet here it feels like we're just at such a different point. You know, we're still talking about not having Indigenous people on, you know, insiders in a week where there could not be a more important week to have that kind of voice on that program. Same with, you know, representation across the industry broadly. And so I think that that goes for sexism and sexual harassment and workplace harassment as well. It just feels like we're we're behind the US in so many ways and you know sure defamation law you know shapes how you know transparent you can be and what sort sorts of allegations you can make. But yeah, it it's disappointing because I think you're right that it did feel like, right, we're finally here and we're finally going to get some kind of change. We might even get defamation or change, you know, media, media organizations are very public and, you know, pushing for defamation law reform in terms of how difficult it is for journalists as well. So it did feel like we were getting somewhere and it doesn't feel like we've gotten very far since. So back at the Radio Alive conference in 2018, Tracy Spicer actually echoed your statements there, uh, Brittany, where she said, there has been less traction in the Me Too movement in Australia for a couple of reasons. One is because we're very conservative. Another is we have some of the most restrictive defamation laws in the Western world and we don't have the proper free speech protections that they have in the United States. So it's been very difficult from an investigative journalist's perspective. And that was when she was talking about how radio is allegedly one of the most uh, toxic environments in which to work in Australia. So I think that conservatism is a big part of it, but also just just the fear, you know, even within the trade press space, we we all sort of sit on stories and, and know about alleged perpetrators and we all hear the same names thrown around all the time, but it's very difficult to stand that up to the standard and, and quality and all of that that Australia's defamation laws require and so many publishers just actually cannot afford 
to end up in court, no matter how true the story is. Not even publishers, but, you know, accusers. Like, you know, I think again about the Bon Appetit example, you know, what I've been reading this past week and I've been interested in. So the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, Adam Rappaport, I think is how you pronounce it. So he was alleged to have engaged in brownface in a Halloween photo that was posted, you know, way back in 2013 or something. He denies that it was brownface, but, you know, the caption that his wife posted at the time suggested they were kind of dressing up as Puerto Ricans. And that was kind of, I guess, the the crux of what then became allegations about a culture that was toxic for people of colour and for black people and the amount that people of colour at Bon Appetit were getting paid versus their white counterparts. So he did end up stepping down and Business Insider did kind of a deeper dive into that environment, which actually had kind of happened over a few weeks and they published a couple of days after Adam stepped down without knowing that kind of this Instagram photo would be pulled up while they were investigating it. But the people who spoke out in that piece then detailed just the hoops that they had to jump through before they felt comfortable going on the record. And that included everything from, okay, well, am I the only one on the record who's speaking out with me to have I spoken to lawyers? Have I spoken to other people in the industry? What's my likelihood of getting another job if I get, you know, fallout and, you know, career, um, my career is is jeopardized because of what I say and, and who I level allegations against. And all of those concerns are so much more magnified here when the industry is just that much smaller. Everyone knows everyone. And it would be an enormously difficult thing to do, I think, in an industry of this size and in this context. So I think Viv's totally right. And I think the now Australia example and kind of what we've seen with with Tracy Spicer has shown, you know, it takes an enormous amount of resource to do justice to what they set out to do. And ultimately, you know, there was carelessness with survivors names and pictures and stories kind of being released in a preview of one of the ABC episodes in that documentary about the Me Too movement, which really I think was kind of the beginning of the end for now Australia. That kind of led to the BuzzFeed investigation, which detailed just how much or rather how little had happened since now Australia promised a bunch of stuff. And I think it's taught us that you you can't be doing this on the side of something else. You can't be kind of half doing this. You can't say to people, flood me with your stories unless you are absolutely sure that you're able to do the right thing with them and able to protect those sources in the right way. Next, Jeep's car crash of an ad campaign. On to Adlan then, Zoe. And let's start with, ah, oh, what's the best way of describing it? Taking a, an advertising icon and putting it through a shredder. You bought a Jeep? Mm-hmm. And so did over 100,000 other Australians. But for some, owning a Jeep wasn't as enjoyable as driving one. 
which is why Jeep have now committed to cap price servicing and more dedicated technical specialists. So every driver is looked after. So Zoe, I bought a Jeep was a really big slogan for a while. It really seemed to work for the brand. And now it's back, sort of. Yes. So when these ads came through to me, I thought, oh, wow, okay, this is kind of a cool concept, like bringing back the original ads and then casting the same actors to deliver a different message. And in some ways it kind of worked, in some ways it kind of hasn't. I mean, the key to this campaign, the revival of I Bought a Jeep, is the brand taking ownership of the fact that when the original campaign came out, it caused the brand to grow incredibly quickly. And because of that, it sort of didn't really take care of other aspects of its customer experience, including post-purchase servicing and that sort of thing. And the revival of the campaign has actually attracted a lot of criticism from the market in that respect because you're kind of exposing your brand to its weaknesses by saying, yes, our products are imperfect, but we're trying to win your trust back. It's kind of, for me, half worked, half not. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Tim? Look, very similar to yours, I think. Um, The really, you know, bizarre thing about this is I suspect that the average, not very informed consumer had no idea that Jeep had a big problem with their after service. And it seems completely bizarre to create a marketing campaign to tell people you've got a problem when they might not have been aware of it. But then to have this weird halfway house where you don't just come out and say, we had a problem, we're sorry, we're better now. But you saw, because you can't quite admit it. So you have to read between the lines as a consumer. So it's, I bought a Jeep, then it's like, oh, and by the way, things are kind of much better now. So you sort of have to read between the lines. So they must have been terrible then. Is that what's going on? And then a whole new tagline at the end with I'm in as well. There's so much confusion here. Um, I, I just, it, I'm slightly lost for words about the strategy because I thought, you know, it's the same agency. It's still Cummins and Partners. I bought a Jeep was such a good tagline. Um, and wow, wow, how depressing that something like this can get to air. Yes, I think something that's quite interesting is that I bought a Jeep did over time sort of start to attract a bit of ridicule and I think good humor from comedians kind of making fun of the tagline and using it in the respective different cars but and so maybe that's played into a a little bit you want to bring back that brand salience I bought a jeep created but at the same time you want to move the brand on to a new chapter of its story something that I have to say does stick out for me in these ads though is because they've used the same actors almost 10 years later, I've got to say some of the makeup and visual effects jobs are a little bit creepy. Are you trying to say that they've had a lot of Botox? Have they had Botox or is it makeup? The one true question for media attention towards actors of all time. Look, I I mean, I must admit, I, I... 
I hadn't actually particularly noticed that they were the same actors. You know, for me, the power in was the line. I bought a Jeep. It wasn't whether they brought the same actors back or not. I didn't even know they had until you told me, um, which again, just seems strategically weird. You know, that there, there wasn't a mass uprising in Australian culture that I miss the actor from the I bought a Jeep ad. It just feels like another thing that's wrong with it. And then let's move on as well. Um, another um, uh, brand looking uh, looking back to its recent past. I'm alive. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm dead inside emotionally. But that's neither here nor there. There's still only one cure for hungry, thirsty, and that's oak. With its full strength and full taste, it's full on. Oak doesn't just hit the spot. It slides into the spot's DMs and leaves an inappropriate emoji. Oak kills hungry, thirsty, dead. Then negotiates the rights to a Netflix doco about the murder. But what do I know about hungry, thirsty? I'm a teddy bear. So that was the new ad for Oak which has revived its Kill Hungry Thirsty brand platform that launched 10 years ago. I personally wasn't completely familiar with Kill Hungry Thirsty, but this ad picks up in one of the previous ads where its character Sergeant John Henry, which was played by the actor David Field, is walking through a fairground doing his monologue. This is the ad from 2012. And in that ad, you see a teddy bear running across behind him. And this ad is actually picking up from where that teddy bear runs across behind him. And it starts its own monologue about how Oak kills the sensation of hungry, thirsty, dead. Look, Zoe, it makes me feel pretty old because I remember writing about that previous breaking campaign. Um, I think at the time, the character's name wasn't a big part of the deal. I remember seeing it and instantly thinking of the movie Sexy Beast with the wonderful actor Ben Kingsley and speaking to someone who was involved in, in the ad and saying, was this just lifted from Sexy Beast? And the, you know, the person involved kind of admitting saying, yeah, that was one of the reference points, which I, I've, I, I've, I, I now understand when something's lifted from popular culture, you describe it as a reference point. Um, so now, obviously, yes, we've got the, uh, the the teddy bear with the uh, with the same sort of aggressive, intriguing voice. Um, do you do we do we think this is gonna sell beverage? I wonder what is the value of using a teddy bear as opposed to just reviving the actual character. Because if you're reviving a campaign and it's going to be a nostalgia point for some people, wouldn't you think that consumers will see the same character as last time and be like, oh, I loved these ads. Like, it's that guy and it was this ad. What's the value of making it a teddy bear this time around? And that is a question I cannot answer. Next, Viv and I talk to the executives behind Foxtel's latest streaming venture, Binge. Tim and I are joined now by Louise Compton, the Chief Marketing Officer of Foxtel's new entertainment streaming service, Binge, and Ant Hearn, Binge's Chief Commercial Officer. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Hi. Now, Binge has been a long time coming and and Foxtel's copped its fair share of criticisms for false starts in the streaming arena. But for a while there, KO, which is Foxtel's sports streaming service, 
was a real jewel in Foxtel's crown. It was boasting climbing numbers and solid engagement and really turning around the Foxtel streaming narrative. And then COVID-19 happened and all bets and all sports were off. Does Binge have a potential COVID moment? What plans have you made around disruption for Binge? Uh, thank you. So, yeah, maybe I'll talk about KO first uh, and then we'll talk about Binge. I think um, obviously when there's no live sport, it's not very good for a uh, for a service like KO that has built itself on live sport. So that has been uh, challenging and those... Uh, those numbers have um, have been um, have been discussed in the in the media. So obviously, you know, the beauty of Ko and the beauty of all of these SFOD services is really the customers in control, right? There's no contract; they're not locked into anything. So that's good. That means they can come in quickly uh, when they're motivated uh, for Ko through a game or for binge for a show. But then, you know, equally, if if the if the value is not there, then they'll step back out. So. With no live sport and a lot of people joining joining KO um, for live sport, we did see um, significant people leave us, but actually not not as much as uh, as we thought maybe would do. The, the interesting thing on KO actually was, um, you know, after lo- losing some of those people, we, we call it uh, pause. You know, they press pause on us. Um, we uh, we actually then saw a pretty stable base that stayed with us. And we've got about, uh, I think it's 15,000 hours of non-live content on KO, so sport content that's not live. So these are replays, these are documentaries, these are all sorts of things like that. And we just saw incredible um, engagement into into that content uh, over, over this COVID period. So where it's been tough, it's also had a silver lining in that it showed us the, the power of that non-live content, and we've learned a lot from that. So that's uh, that's from uh, the KO side of things. From the binge side of things, is there has there ever been a better time to launch a streaming service? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know what we've seen over the last couple of months is certainly that people are using the category more than they ever have, um, and in fact, I think a lot of people have burnt through. Um, a lot of content on their existing subscriptions. So people are really looking for fresh content. Um, and given that, you know, now it's uh, coming into winter and, you know, time for us to snuggle down and kind of, you know, hunker into more shows, um, we really think it, it's it's been the perfect time for us to, to launch Binge. And Lou, I guess one of the questions to ask you about in terms of marketing strategy is, it's a crowded market. There are so many choices. I think it's the same for any, you know, any consumer, I suspect that many people in the in the industry have more than one subscription. How do you think about cutting through and giving people a reason to subscribe to Binge in particular? Is it simply about the content? Uh, look, Tim, uh, that's a great question. And actually, it comes down to three things. The content is king, first and foremost, and we're really proud of the collection of content that we have, which comes from the world's best studios. The content is really exceptional, and for, and and certainly customers in our you know in our first week or so have been telling us that and have been really enjoying you know getting stuck into some fresh content. The the two other things that that make binge different, um, firstly and foremost, um, is the the product itself. And uh, the product has been built by streamers for streamers. It's on a world-class next-generation platform and has really been designed uh, with the entertainment streamer in mind. Uh, there was a lot of work done um, on the category um, and where, you know, improvements could be made. And one of the challenges that 
people who stream a lot have is that they can't find what they want to watch. So there's been a lot of work done both in terms of the the design in the UI, um, also in terms of some features um, that are starting to roll out and there'll be more to come on this that are really designed to try and get people into the content that they want to watch faster. But I think the third thing that really makes Binge different is its brand. And that's, you know, the thing that I've been uh, very proud to be a part of creating. Um, And what we really wanted to do here was build something that was very distinct and new and felt fresh. And it's a magnetic brand. It's a bold brand. It's a brand that has been built around a universal, I guess, um, uh, purpose in, in that it's about championing the freedom to indulge. I don't know about you, I've got two uh, kids at home and, you know, by the time I get home at the end of the day and put my feet up and take my shoes off and pour a glass of wine, when I turn on Binge, for me it's all about indulgence, it's me time and it's escapism and that's what Binge the brand is all about. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I was a bit slow uh, with KO to realise that it was a play on the KO knockout terminology. It was embarrassingly late that somebody pointed that out to me over a glass of wine, but I think you've made it really simple with binge in terms of what that means. And then the marketing tagline, unturnoffable, which may not be a word really, but it's very easy to understand. Have you deliberately gone down that simple route so that it's clear what it is and what you're looking for? Absolutely, uh, we have. Um, And, you know, we're really proud of the name Binge. Um, When people talk about binging a show, they talk about it almost as a badge of honour and it's because the content is so good. And, you know, we feel that we can use that term because our content is exceptional. Um, and I guess, you know, in, in the spirit of the brand, we're also being a little bit cheeky in that we are hijacking the category verb. Uh, you know, people do talk about binging. It's very established um, in the entertainment and streaming vernacular. So we're being a little bit cheeky there. As for unturnoffable, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we have created a new word um, and, you know, it is really a reason to believe in, in how good the product is. It is truly unturnoffable. And it talks to that, that feeling uh, that we've tried to build through the brand, uh, which will, will come, you know, to play and to bear through the marketing that, that Australia will see, um, you know, through time. But that feeling that you get when you're just so, you know, engrossed in a show that you just have to watch one more just one more <laughs> just one more and you know that is truly unturnoffable so yes we are having a bit of fun there with the category verb and a new word i'm well, you're wondering how long it's going to take us before unturnoffable is recognized as a real word we'll see well let's uh let's talk a bit a little bit more about the uh the marketing campaign we've obviously had the print component that's come along already um which you've been working on the hallway with uh the 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 tv version of the ad has just broken this week as well so we'll have a tiny bit of that we're for the bingers the tv tragics the laptop peekers the get an epin on the way to work sneakers for speak to the hand i'm watching my show i'm not coming to the party but please you go for escaping the world even just for a while. Go on, lose yourself on your face, a big smile, with friends or your family, or when everyone's gone, to all of you bingers. Binge on. 
so obviously one of those places we'll be hearing that I'm sure is across the News Corps aligned properties, the Foxtel aligned properties. Um, how significant though is your marketing budget beyond that? Will it, will you be getting a decent marketing spend of actual dollars to spend? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we are, as you mentioned before, this is um, a crowded um, a crowded marketplace. Uh, we're late to the party, but we are going to walk in that door with impact. Um, we are obviously lucky to have uh, incredible partnerships uh, with the News Corp group, but not only that, um, you know, the, those partnerships go even deeper and you're seeing already some uh, some work that we're doing with Channel 7, with Nova. So there's there's partnerships that have been worked on beyond News Corp as well. Uh, and there will be a significant spend. At the end of the day, this is a direct-to-consumer subscription brand. Uh, we're starting to get a bit better now. At um, We're starting to get a lot better, I think, at knowing what it means to, to succeed with a brand like that. And, um, you know, and, and a great spend um, of media and a great mix between brand and performance is crucial to drive the success. So, uh, you know, this is the, you'll see the start of this campaign starting to come out now, um, but we'll be committed to ongoing spend to drive this business through uh, the next year and, and a long time beyond that. Look, a question for, for both of you, and Ant, you, you refer to the sort of the partnership with Seven. Um, a, a previous attempted streaming service was Presto, which was a joint venture with Seven, which which didn't work out. Now, I know it was before both of your times, but what what do you think were the lessons of why that didn't work out that will give you a better chance of succeeding this time? Um, look, I, I think the the learnings uh, that that we made through Presto, we've really kind of focused in on the the areas of why binge now is different, um, and you know that really comes down to. Uh, the content and the curation of the content and how we put that content together. Um, a lot of being, a lot of work is being done on on that. We have a great editorial team in house that's really looking to understand what people are watching and using data to really drive what people are seeing um, in the product. Uh, secondly, um, it comes down to that user experience, and this is a brand new product that has been created from scratch on a world-class technology platform and it's really been built for, you know, the future generation of streaming. Uh, so there's been a lot of work done on that and understanding, um, I guess, how people do use streaming products. As I mentioned to you before, a very big focus on trying to kill the scroll and getting people into the content that, that they want to watch um, faster. And, and the brand itself is a completely different brand. It's a fresh brand. It's a magnetic brand. Um, it's a very spirited, cheeky and fun brand. Yeah, and adding on to that, you know, the USP of this at the end of the day is the world's best shows for just $10. Uh, and we will deliver on that very, very well. I think um, Presto maybe didn't deliver as much on that kind of a proposition. Um, so you're right, both Lou and I weren't here from Presto. Obviously, there's a there's a corporate memory there and, and some learnings that we've definitely flowed into it. But um, we're not looking in the rear vision mirror very much. We're, we're looking straight ahead and, and how we can uh, grow this business. And that was going to be my next question, actually. How did you determine the price point for Binge? And did the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic where so many consumers don't have a lot of spending confidence and might have taken pay cuts. Did that factor in to your thinking at all? 
No, look, I think the the category sort of set where the price points are, and if you deviate too much off that, then then you're really sort of setting yourself up with a, a difficult um, a difficult job. So um, I know there's a few variations, but they they tend to fall pretty much in the in the same buckets. Um, so that sort of that was you know the the background. We obviously did a lot of research and price elasticity and all that kind of stuff. But then the day you know the the market really determines that. Uh, in terms of COVID uh, and the price point, absolutely had no impact on it. Um, and we've sort of, you know, seen speculation on whether whether we brought this forward or, you know, because of COVID. This has been planned for a long time. There's been a lot of work going into this. Um, this launch time is the launch time that we were always expecting it to be. The price points are exactly what we're expecting it to be. And, and the content is what we absolutely hoped it would be. Um, you know, you know, there's been some some recent deals that have been done uh, in in that space, and we're very very happy that that's uh, that's all all happened, and we've just got incredible content, the world's best shows from the world's best studios uh, from only ten dollars. The uh, the Foxtel connection is obviously one of the, the the means of getting access to those content deals. I've noticed that with a a lot of the marketing messages you wouldn't necessarily know as a consumer that it is part of the same family. Um, what is your brief from, from, from Foxtel world? Because I guess one of the things that Foxtel is experiencing is, is its business model as a subscription TV service has, has been, been challenged by all of these other streamers. Is your brief to destroy Foxtel from within and be the disruptors um, or, or, or is the fact that you're part of the Foxtel family limiting you in what you can do? Yeah, thanks. Um, look, I, I think, first of all, we're sort of going after two different things, right? Foxtel uh, is an amazing brand and it has been for many years and it brings premium entertainment experience into households and it delivers this proposition of all in one place. That's what it does. And it does it very well. Uh, we're set up for something very different. Binges is, is not that. Either is KO. Um, Binge is only focused on streaming entertainment for streamers. KO is only focused on streaming sport content to sports streamers. So we're very focused on that that growth into that area, um, and uh, and that's what we're set up to do. Yeah, I just just further that by saying, you know, our aim is not to compete with Foxtel. That that this is all about building new audiences, and and it's a big market, and there is actually still a lot of room for growth. Uh, you know, we know that the the household penetration of streaming probably has been sped up a little bit in the last couple of months, but we still know there's quite a lot of room to grow there. In addition, we know that the number of subscriptions held uh, per person is also likely to increase as we've seen in other more mature streaming markets. So, uh, yeah, there's plenty of room for everyone. And one of the criticisms or commentaries that I've seen so far about Binge's lineup is that particularly with the promotional campaign is that we see a lot of old content on there like Seinfeld or other shows which had a strong run in the 90s. Was that a deliberate decision to rely on older content or will there be sort of more originals and exclusives to come down the track? 
Look, it's it's a combination of new and old. We like to kind of describe it as uh, delighting with the old binge-worthy best favourites and also, you know, getting tempting people in with great new shows. Um, there, there are new shows on the service. Uh, Mrs America has just recently um, broken, like in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Bad Education is, is a brand-new film uh, starring Hugh Jackman and Alison Janney, uh, which is great. Um, and where where there's new stuff that's there's actually new stuff dropping every day um, and there's some incredible new shows coming down the line over the next uh, six or eight weeks or so um, and a great range of shows that are coming we've got a, a great docu series um, called McMillions which I'm really excited to to kind of sink my teeth into uh, which is about uh, the monopoly McDonald's um, scam that occurred in in the US and it's kind of uh, follows the FBI agents who were kind of trying to you know get to the bottom of it uh we've got uh White House Farm which is a brand new uh BBC uh drama um a, a murder drama um it's actually based on a true story uh which happened um in in the 1980s in the UK um quite a sad story where a whole family was murdered and it's a real case of you know British crime at its best and a real who done it kind of story uh, you know, we've got um, Big Bang Theory, all of that coming uh, to us um, early next month, which we're really excited about. So that is a little bit of a bit of the old, but people will be able to binge it all. Uh, we've got another great show um, from the BBC called Noughts and Crosses coming in July as well. It's it's kind of a take on Romeo and Juliet, um, but uh, set in kind of future day uh, London, which looks really great. Um, and then there's one that's coming at the end of July that I'm really excited about um, as well. It's real. It's really for the kind of thrill seekers. It's an action uh, drama set in South Africa in Cape Town, um, and it kind of is a fusion of of terrorism plots, CIA um, investigation, black rhinos, diamond smuggling. Um, so that'll kind of keep us all busy. I think lots how, there to watch. How much content <laughs> have you been watching, Lou? How, like, what a- <laughs> Well, what I get up to in my evenings. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I guess there'll be a business plan for you uh, with some numbers written down, some of which will be confidential, some of which won't. Uh, one of them will be, I guess, a target number of subscribers. Um, when we're looking back in 12 months' time, how will we tell whether you've succeeded? Yeah, well, I think, you know, a week in, it's sort of too early to, to look too much on numbers. Obviously, we're watching them on a daily basis. But at the moment, really, the, the focus of the business is making sure that we deliver a fantastic experience for our, our bingers, uh, for our customers, and, and also just learning. Like, we're having daily stand-ups just bringing in all the different data points that we have in, in our, our marketing and our business world these days and just trying to uh, to learn, we're we're setting off a whole lot of um, you know experiments to see how people react to different types of content. You know, we come off the power of um, or the the stability and the uh, the confidence, I suppose, of working off the platform that Ko was built on. So we've done it for live sport. We know the platform's pretty good. We've also learned a lot from that in terms of customer service. So the percentage of um, inquiries from customers over our first. A week or so has been significantly lower than than when we launched Ko. So we've we've had some great um, uh, uh, advances there and some great learnings are there. And that's really what we're focused on is just ensuring we're capturing those learnings. Obviously, there are numbers that we have to to, to deliver, and those numbers will be um, uh, will be delivered within the within the earnings call of of the the group when the time is right. And we're 
highly confident, confident Tim, that those numbers will be fantastic and we'll all be very happy. Louise and Ant from Foxtel's new streaming service, Binge, thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. And I'm glad to tell you, as we come to the end of the Mumbrella Cast, Viv appears to have staunched the bleeding. That is it for this week, though. Before we go, let me remind you that first entries for the Mumbrella Awards are due at the end of this month on June the 30th. So not long to go. And we've also launched the call for entries for the Mumbrella Publish Awards now. So um, if you think you've done something cool, then get on to mumbrella.com.au and um, look at our various awards pages for more information. That is it for this week, though. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Toodle pip. Thank you.